As a pastor, I have found, as most pastors have, that those who are spectators, those who are up in the stands just watching and doing nothing, have all the time in the world to criticize those who are serving, those who are in the trenches, those who are battling it out, trying to win people to Christ and grow them in their faith. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the book of Romans, we moved yesterday into chapter 14, a section that takes a look at what we might call gray areas in a Christian's life. The example Paul gives relates to whether it is okay for believers to eat certain foods. But by extension and application, we can take this principle to various other areas, such as when something affects one individual's conscience, but not another's. As we rejoin Dr. Brogy, he gives us the cultural background of this passage to which we can apply this chapter to our own lives. But he who is least in the kingdom is greater than John. Why? Because John died before the fulfillment of the new covenant. It was not until Jesus in time and space secured our forgiveness, something that the blood of bulls and goats could never do, and ascended onto high. And just as the Father promised, he sent God the Holy Spirit to come and live in us. And so the way God distinguishes his people today is not externally, but internally. And Jesus was underscoring this in Mark chapter 7 when he said to the Pharisees, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside does not defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated? Thus, he declared all foods clean. Christ in you is the hope of glory. He is our distinguishing mark. So this is the background behind the 14th chapter. Some thought, I'm afraid that most of the meat in our day is contaminated. It's not kosher. It's been demonized. And so I'm not going to have anything to do with it. I'm only going to eat vegetables. But other Christians said, no, the Lord Jesus himself, he declared all meats clean. I love a good steak. I love a good pork chop. And the best meat prices are down there at Pagan's Meat Market. And good stewardship would warrant that that's where I buy my food. So this is the discussion behind the statement here in verse 2. Look at your Bible. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. So you have this brother with pork and shrimp on a skewer. His fellow Jewish brother comes to his home. He's grown up under the Old Testament law, and he has real trouble with this. And the Gentile brother who's been saved out of an idol-worshiping background He too has trouble because he despises anything associated with a pagan temple where this product was bought. And so Jews and some Gentiles looked with a deep sense of contempt towards these brothers who exercise this freedom. And they said, in essence, how could you? And the believer eating his pork and shrimp skewer would say, I can eat because I'm free to eat in Christ. And so this is the first situation. It was an issue of diet. And so we have to ask the question, how are these brothers to respond to one another? Well, the answer is found back in verse 1. Look at it again. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinion. Major question, who is the Apostle Paul addressing? He's addressing the strong. He's addressing the meat eaters. 
He's addressing those people who purchased meat at Pagan's Meat Market who felt like they had the freedom to eat pork or anything else they wanted to eat. And he's saying to them, look, you meat eaters, remember, not everyone feels the same way you feel. Not everyone in their conscience has the same liberty you have. So don't sit down next to them and talk about how good the pork chops were last night. Just keep your mouth shut. And so here in verse 1, he's addressing the strong about the weak. By the way, which camp was the Apostle Paul in? Was he strong or was he weak? Well, you would expect he was strong. And three times over in the passage, he identifies himself as such. Look at verse uh, 14 of this chapter. We'll come to it in a few weeks. I know, he said, and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Notice verse 20. He affirms it a second time. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. And then chapter 15 and verse 1, it opens again with this affirmation. Now we, he includes himself, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. And so the ideal is to become strong in faith when dealing with those with a weaker conscience. Now, please understand at the outset, when Paul describes a weaker brother, he's not talking about someone who doesn't love the Lord. This person may be deeply in love in Christ, nor is he necessarily speaking of someone who is easily overcome by temptation. That's not what he means by a weaker brother. He's speaking about someone who does not have freedom in their conscience to do certain things. They lack a certain liberty. And so the ideal, as we will see, is to become strong in faith. But Christians don't grow up by force. They need to be nurtured. They need to be taught. They need to be brought along. No one grows into liberty by shaming them, by making fun of them. But unfortunately, the one who has liberty is not necessarily stronger because he's more mature. Maybe it's just because of the way he was raised. He was raised as a Gentile where he could eat any kind of thing. So when he came to Christ, it was a non-issue. And so his tendency might be to flaunt his liberty. And so Paul says to us here in verse 3, the one who eats has this freedom is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. Now, the words regard with contempt is a single word in the original. It carries the idea of despising or putting down that Christian. Some time ago, I shared Christ with a lady who had recently attended another church in our town, and she was turned away because her address length was just slightly above the knee. And unfortunately, in their concern over her dress, they missed the opportunity to lead her to Jesus Christ, and God gave me that opportunity. Now, if I told you what church it was, you might get upset with that church because they were all bent over shape over an issue that was really a non-issue. Her clothing was very chaste. And you might, be think, you might think, what, what, what a congregation of legalists, what a, what a group of hyper-fundamentals, what's their problem? And Paul would say, you're not to regard with contempt that church that did not receive her in an, with this unrealistic skirt length. Now, that's what the strong brother is instructed to do concerning the weaker brother. And then he gives instruction to the weaker brother. Notice, and the one who does not eat, that's the weaker brother, that's the vegetarian. The one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. You see that word judge, it's even a stronger word. 
it means, uh, it brings a sense of, it has the idea of condemnation. So the man eating the ham biscuit looks down at the vegetarian. He says, you legalist, you weakling, don't you know we have freedom in Christ? And the man who does not eat looks at the brother who does and he says, you're going to hell. You've probably never been saved because if you were really truly saved, you would never abandon the time-honored principles of Israel. And it's not changed much today. The strong still tend to poke fun at the weak. And the weak sometimes entirely write off the strong. And as we'll see in just a few weeks, sometimes the strong write off people who they perceive to be weak as legalistic, when in reality, they're not legalistic at all. They're actually obeying a clear principle of the Word of God, and they're living a separated life. But here, Paul is addressing people who are truly weak. And unfortunately, many times people think that weak Christians who follow strict rules are less mature than the strong. When in reality, a weak brother, though he may not have freedom in his conscience to do certain things, he may be more mature, spiritually speaking, in his overall life than the so-called strong. Now, in the church at Rome, the weak Christians were those who unnecessarily clung to some things that Christ gave us freedom from, so they no longer need to cling to those things. And so the weak were condemning the strong, and the strong were condemning the weak. That's what's going on here. Now, keep in mind here, we're not talking about issues that God has clearly spelled out in the Word of God. There are some issues that have no and, if, or buts about them. God has spoken. There's no room for debate. When God said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, flee fornication, do not bear false witness for a man to lie with a man is an abomination. Those things are clearly spelled out in the word of God. And remember too, that when the apostle Paul here in verse one says not to pass judgment on the opinions of others, he's not advocating as some liberals teach in our day that doctrine is not important. Some in liberal denominations, in Peter's words, they distort the scriptures to their own destruction. And they use verses like Romans 14 and verse 1 to say we should be open. That's what the devil does. He comes as an angel of light. He comes masquerading as a servant of God when he, in, in reality, Paul says he's a servant of the evil one. And so they use the scriptures to baptize their views. They say, look, you can have an opinion. You can believe whatever you want. No, he's not talking about issues like the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the virgin conception, his substitutionary atonement, his literal, physical, actual resurrection from the dead. He's not addressing the inerrant authority of the Word of God. Those are non-negotiables in Paul's mind. And then you have people who take this verse, and under the guise of judging one another, they say you can't have a standard. And so in many mainline denominations, they have fully embraced homosexual marriage. They have fully embraced the free use of marijuana and other wicked things. And you will see, I have no doubt in my mind, that some leaders in the evangelical church in the next couple of years will also come out with the same position because they're not true Christians. And so what is in view here is not as what is specifically spelled out in the Word of God, but things that are not spelled out and the principles that we need to understand to exercise the freedom we have in Christ. Now, notice verse 3 again and pay close attention to the end of the verse. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. And why not, Paul? 
because or for God has accepted him. The reason the strong are not to regard with contempt, or some of your translations say, the reason they're not to despise them or look down on the weak who doesn't eat, and the reason the weak are not to judge those who are strong is because God has accepted him. How can I possibly reject someone whom God has accepted? How can I possibly reject my brother in Christ whom the Lord has saved? Would you like it if I rejected and despised your children? Well, certainly God does not like it when we reject and despise his children. And since you didn't save that person, and since you can save absolutely no one, then you have absolutely no business at all in looking down or rejecting them. Notice the question he asks here in verse 4. Who are you to judge the servant of another? Now, while it is true that we serve others, ultimately all of our service is to the Lord God himself. If I am an employer with a company and you're working for me, then I expect you to do what I have hired you to do. And if you as a guest come into my company and start telling my employees what they should be doing, there would be a sense of indignancy in the heart of the employer. They would say, who are you to tell my employee what he or she should do? That's Paul's point here in verse 4. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he stands or falls. Now, clearly implied in the word servant is the idea that the person is busy serving the Lord God. And as a pastor, I have found, as most pastors have, that those who are spectators, those who are up in the stands just watching and doing nothing, have all the time in the world to criticize those who are serving, those who are in the trenches, those who are battling it out, trying to win people to Christ and grow them in their faith. People who are typically involved in the Great Commission, people who have found a place at the wall are not those who typically criticize. And I'm thankful for some of you who are involved in different parachurch ministries in our community, but, but listen, that is no substitute whatsoever for your involvement in the local church. God's heart, God's plan is first for the local church. It's like we were discussing recently in this series on finances on Wednesday nights. God's plan is that the tithe doesn't belong to Search the Scriptures, my radio ministry, or WAGP, or Billy Graham, or Focus on the Family. It belongs to the local church. Now, God may give you an offering above the 10% that you have freedom to give to other things. But God's focus is the local church, and so it is in the New Testament, the service of God's people. They are to find a place in the local assembly, and they are to serve. And someday you'll give an account to Jesus, as we'll see before the chapter is over, concerning our involvement in the local assembly. To his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. He's simply reminding us that he's not going to stand before you someday and give an account to you. In heaven, he is going to stand before the Lord God. He is ultimately not responsible to you. He was responsible to God, to his own master. He stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. God is able to make him stand. That is, God is able to give him approval whether or not he has yours. Sometimes judging Christians can look very spiritual, but many times it's just a false sense of spirituality. I read a book almost 40 years ago by Fritz Reidenauer. It was entitled, How to Be a Christian Without Being Religious. And he deals with this issue of strong 
and weak Christians. And he gives an example of one Christian brother who questions another Christian brother. The weaker brother asks his friend, stop me if I'm wrong, George, but haven't you spent a lot of money on this new and extravagant car? And George, the strong answer, nope. That's the way you'd expect a strong Christian to answer with a sense of disdain towards his brother who may be judging him. And his weaker brother says, no. You don't think that the money could have better, been better spent for the leprosy fund? Now, that sounds really pious. And it sounds really spiritual, but in reality, it's judgmental because he actually has no right to judge his brother as to what kind of car he drives. God doesn't say whether you can drive a Cadillac or a Volkswagen. That's your personal choice as you seek the Lord and you will give an account for the decisions you make just as I will. God doesn't say you can live in this size house or this size house. That's your decision before the Lord. God doesn't spell that out, but he does give you principles that should guide your behavior. So that's the first overarching principle by way of introduction into this chapter. We're to guard our attitudes. Secondly, we're to guard our actions. We're to guard our actions in such a way that we would not cause a brother or sister in Christ to stumble. Now, again, I want to just introduce the concept today, and I hope to develop it more fully in the weeks ahead. But to help us to understand, Paul now gives us a second illustration. He moves from their arguments over diet to their arguments over days. Look at verse 5. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. And so what exactly was the controversy between the weak Christians who regarded one day above another and the strong Christians who said every day is alike? Again, remember in the early church, you have Jews and Gentiles that have been brought together into one fellowship. And the Jews had been brought up under the old covenant law They worshiped not on the first day of the week, but for centuries they'd worshiped on the seventh day of the week. And in addition, there was a number of special Sabbaths throughout the year, not to mention certain feasts and religious observances that a pious Jew would keep. By the way, don't stand up on a Sunday and say, Lord God, we just ask that you would bless this Sabbath day. Because this is not the Sabbath day. The seventh day of the week is the Sabbath day. We don't worship on the seventh day of the week. This is Sunday. This is the first day of the week. God changed the day that the church should worship on. Now listen, all Ten Commandments apply. They are still binding, but the application has changed. For instance, in the Fifth Commandment, God said, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long in the land. That's what God said. You can read it in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. That you may live long in the land. That may be well with you. When Paul comes to the New Testament in Ephesians 6, he says, Obey, honor your father and mother, that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. Same commandment, different application. God still establishes that one day in seven is a day in which God's people are to come apart and to worship. But we don't do it on the seventh day of the week. We do it on the first day of the week. Now, in the early church, yes, on the Sabbath, they would go into the synagogues and in different places where the Jews met because God called them to carry the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. But 15 years into the history of the church, when you come to Acts chapter 20, you find the church meeting on the first day of the week. On the first day of the week, 
the, uh, Luke records, when we were gathered together to break bread. The Lord of the Sabbath changed the day in which God's people would worship. And so when you come into the epistles of the New Testament, you discover the church does not meet on Saturday, but on Sunday. So Paul said to the Corinthians, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. Why Sunday? Why not the seventh day? Because the Sabbath was over during this dispensation. Now, it is interesting that during the millennial reign of Christ, Ezekiel the prophet teaches that we will worship once again on the seventh day, on Saturday. But right now, in honor of the resurrection, which is the central doctrine of the New Testament, it is the heralded doctrine of the New Testament. The cross, the death of Christ, has no meaning apart from the resurrection. The resurrection is a declaration that Christ was sinless, that He was Lord, and He was able to pay for our sins. Tens of thousands of men were crucified, but only one man came out of the grave. And so today, when we come into these issues of days, you have Christians who are still divided. You had some Jewish people who said, no, the seventh day, that's the day we should worship. And then you had these Gentiles in the early church where they came out of pagan idolatry. And just like the Jew that had certain holidays, their calendar was filled with holidays where they worshiped these false gods. And the thought to isolate one day in their mind was just obnoxious. And they said, no, every day is to be lived for the Lord. Every day is to be holy. And we shouldn't put Saturday or Sunday over the others. Well, in today, here in the 21st century, there are still basically four major camps. First, there are those Christians who worship on the seventh day of the week. They're typically called Seventh-day Adventists or Seventh-day Baptists. They don't worship on Sunday. They worship on Saturday. Now, I'm not here to defend whether or not Seventh-day Adventists are Christians or not. I've met some very godly Seventh-day Adventists, Adventists who have met the Lord. I know in many countries of the world, they're not considered Christians because they still practice and teach some of the damnable doctrines of Ellen G. White, who, for instance, said Jesus had a sin nature when he did not. But lay that aside, there are Adventists who teach salvation by grace alone through faith alone, but they do feel that the Sabbath day to worship is binding. They're confused. They don't understand the new covenant pattern. Then there are weaker brothers on this issue who um, basically say that the first day of the week is the Christian Sabbath. And by calling it the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day, what they typically do, not always, but typically, they make certain principles that applied uniquely to the nation of Israel and they put them on the church. And they very often have a long list of things you can or cannot do on the Lord's day. In addition, there are those strong Christians who worship not on the seventh day, but the first day of the week. They recognize that it is a day to be refreshed spiritually, that they are to gather with God's people for worship. But unfortunately, there's a fourth category that is more and more categorizing Americans. And they do not see the Lord's Day as special at all. And they have actually moved from liberty into license. One man, after I got off the radio, was waiting for me, ready to ambush me, it seemed, at my office. And he said, I am my own pastor. I said, oh, great, where do you pastor? He said, well, I pastor my family. I said, oh, so your church on Sunday morning is in your home? Yes. Who are your members? Well, just me and my kids. I said, that's not a church. 
a church is not a Bible study. A church has certain characteristics in the New Testament. It has elders, it has deacons, it practices the ordinances like baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's committed to the Great Commission, helping to support missionaries. There are certain characteristics that make a New Testament church a New Testament church. So we've got some people who, who write off the church and they redefine the church. And then you have many Christians today who are very sloppy in their worship. And they don't view Sunday as all that important. And if they feel like coming to church, they might. Hold your finger here for a moment and turn to the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 1. I want you to see something. If you're new to the Bible, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Right before Matthew is the book of Malachi. And go to the first chapter, if you will. You know, we're talking about some issues, some gray areas. And Audrey and I were in a discussion last month over this. And we're saying, you know, when we first started teaching on staff with Campus Crusade in the late 70s and early 80s, there was a whole long list of issues that college students and Christians in America wanted us to address. Almost none of those things are even on the list today. Why? Because the church in America has become very worldly. You know, when I first became a Christian in 1975, approximately 75% of Americans were in church on any Sunday. Now today, only about 30%. Well, going to church doesn't make you a Christian, but one of the problems is, is God's people have become so sloppy They've lost their ability to be like light and salt, and it's lowered the standards for the rest of the culture. And so here in the book of Malachi, God affirms the need not to be in the category of sloppy worship, but holy worship. Now remember in the early church, some of the only books they had were the Old Testament. For the first decade, they couldn't go to John's gospel or to Ephesians or Corinthians or Romans. All they had was the Old Testament. Uh, Paul never read the book of Revelation. You ever think about that? The Apostle Paul never read the book of Revelation when he was on earth. Maybe he can read it in heaven. I don't know. But he, he never read it on earth because it hadn't been written. It was written after he died. And so they read the Old Testament. They read it in light of the new covenant and they applied it. But remember, this is not what God has said. This is what God is saying. All scripture, including the Old Testament, is given by inspiration of God and it is profitable. And so Malachi lived in a day where there was sloppy worship. And I believe one of the greatest problems in our day is not simply a lack of worship, but a lack of true worship. People come to church, they look around, they're checking off the order of service, they're planning their menus for the week. Some of them got their phones out, they're texting their friends across the auditorium. When is this pastor going to shut up? And, and when it's all over, they say, I'm glad my duty is over and I can go home. Well, God addresses this problem of sloppy worship. Look at Malachi 1, verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests who despise my name. So God begins by telling Israel he's a father, he's a master. His point is, is that a son honors, he obeys his father. And since Israel was God's son, God's firstborn, whom he brought out of Egypt, where was his honor? Where was his respect? When it comes to gray areas in the Christian's life, the stronger brother who understands his freedom in Christ should be intentional not to cause the weaker brother to stumble. To listen to this or any of the messages in the Roman series, Use the Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also call and request Gray Areas, program ROM65, 
on CD or DVD. Our phone number is 877-787-7478. And when you call, consider making a tax-deductible contribution to the Ministry of Search the Scriptures. It is through your generosity that together we can reach the lost and encourage believers in their walk with the Lord. Tomorrow we conclude our look at gray areas. Join us then as we search the scriptures.